of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. Hallelujah. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. When you got it, say so. Begin reading in verse 14, and the word of the Lord declares, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen? Amen. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your grace. We thank you for your kindness and for your mercy, Lord God. And today we just humble ourselves before you, Lord, in this place. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would be exalted in this place, O God, and that the name of Jesus would be lifted high, Lord God. Father, I pray that even as we begin this new series, that our hearts would be stirred more toward you, that our hearts would be illuminated, Lord God, that our ears would be open, and that we would be able to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use us all for your glory to be extensions of your grace in this earth. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. So we're going to watch a video in a moment, but I just want to introduce this. I'm going to be dealing for the next five weeks on this topic called grace. And the series is entitled Grace Is. And the way that this came about was I was walking out of church and I, say, and I said something. I say a lot of things, you know, when I preach. I mean, obviously, I've been preaching for 12 years, so I've said a lot of stuff. Amen? I'm just saying. So ultimately, I say things, and, you know, sometimes I just think that people get it. Like, they just understand what I'm saying. But then when I was at the door, you know, I, I made a statement about depending on grace. And someone was like, I don't understand that. And I said, really? And I said, okay, so let's work together and let's grow in this dependence on grace. Amen? And so for me, I want us to be a grace-filled community. And so we're going to watch this video really quick, and then I'll come back and we'll get into this word. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Excuse me, son. Yeah? What have you got there? Got, got some birds, some wild birds. Really? Yeah. Where'd you get them? Got them in the field over there. There's a field with wild birds. Huh. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind my asking, what are you going to do with them? I want to play games with them. Games? Yeah, I can play games with wild birds, yeah. What kind of games? Um, sometimes I like to poke a stick in there, you know, and they'll be like going, gah, 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 like that, you know? And then sometimes I like to rattle up the cage, and they think it's an earthquake, and they love that. What happens to them after you're done playing games with them? Mm, usually I feed them my cat. Yeah, my cat likes wild birds. I tell you what, I am fond of wild birds. You are? Yeah, let me buy them from you. You want to buy my wild birds? Yeah. Well, they're no good for nothing. They can't do no tricks or nothing. And when you open this gate, they're just going to fly away. How much? You're serious? 
I'm very serious. Five dollars. All right. Ten dollars. Okay. Twenty dollars. They're wild birds. They're exotic birds. You found them in a field. An exotic field. All right. That's all I got. See you looking at the cage. Yeah. What do you got in there? You know what's in there. Mankind. Found them in the garden. The funny thing is, they put themselves in that cage. I had nothing to do with it. So what's your plans with them? I want to play games with them. Games? What kind of games? All kinds of games. I'm going to put games into their life that they think is going to bring them so much pleasure that I'm going to turn the world upside down. I'm going to make right seem wrong and wrong seem right. And then? They'll be damned for all eternity. My father and I, we're very fond of mankind. I know. We want them to have access to us. So, I'm going to pay for their freedom. You want these humans? Yeah. You know they've promised you everything before. They're going to turn their backs on you. Some will, and some won't. You're serious. Oh, I'm very serious. It'll cost you your tears. I know. Your blood. Yeah. It'll cost you your life. I know. You're willing to give your life. I'm willing to give what it takes. This reminds us about what Jesus did for us on the cross. He picked up that wooden cross and carried it to Mount Calvary because he loved you and me. foundation for grace is the cross. Amen? The greatest demonstration that we see of God's love is in that cross. And so the topic of grace and the reason why we're going to be going over this for the next five messages is because it is one that needs to be solidified in our hearts. It is the only truth. Hear me when I say this. It is the only truth that I know of that can keep us humble and hopeful at the same time. When we think about grace and we think about what Jesus did, when we think about what grace really offers us, it really is able to keep us humble because we realize that there is nothing. We, we didn't do anything to earn anything. Amen? We didn't do anything to earn. We have done nothing. Never, ever, ever have we done anything that has made us worthy of God's grace. Can you lower me a little bit there? Um, I feel like I'm a little loud, a lot loud. Um, and I'm going to get a lot louder in a moment. So um, I don't want to blow anyone's ears up. But... We want to, we, 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 we can be, we can understand that we have not done anything to deserve or earn anything from God, and yet God gives us everything freely just because He's God and because He's good. 
He does that for us. And when we think about grace, and the reason why I want to preach on this, I want to preach on grace for the rest of my life. I mean, obviously, I'm going to preach grace until I die. But I really didn't understand grace. And, and, I, and I, I'll say this sincerely. And, and the reason why I really want to preach this is not for you. It's for me. Because the more I study grace, the more I get to understand grace. The more I'm changed by grace, the more I understand how much I am unworthy of God's grace, and yet he still offers me this grace. And so I want to be changed just like I want to see you changed by the power of God's grace. I want us to know that because it gives us a humility, but then it also gives us this hope. And so grace is, we'll deal with five aspects of grace, and my hope is that you and myself will be edified and that we'll be better equipped to live lives that are dependent upon God's grace. And so we're going to go through what I call machine gun scripture right now. Amen? And so what that means is we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures together. It's a quick overview of the book of Acts and why is grace so important for us. And we're not going to go through the whole book, but we want to go through some specific scriptures. And so in the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 33, and I'm depending on the guys back there to have these up here because I don't know them by memory. Praise the Lord. So Acts chapter 4 and verse 33 tells us, it says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace, say grace, grace. was upon them all. And so who was grace upon? says them all. It's not just the apostles, but it is everybody. There was great grace that was upon them all. And then Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 it says here, and Stephen, full of the holy, full of faith and power, and did great wonders and signs among the people. And so there was, there was supposed to be grace in there somewhere. I don't know. Grace disappeared from that one. Anyway, we'll look at the next one. So 11 and verse 23. I don't know what happened. That was the wrong scripture, maybe. I gave them the wrong scripture. So when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that, with, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And so great grace was seen upon the people of God here in Acts chapter 13 and verse 43 it says now when the congregation had broken up many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God Acts chapter 14 and verse 33 it says therefore they strayed they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands and so we see the grace of God upon the church church acts 14 and verse 26 and it says from there they sailed to antioch where they had been where they have been commended to the grace of god for the work which they had completed and so just notice for a moment here when you look at this particular scripture this is speaking of specifically of paul and barnabas and what has happened is when they were going to go out into ministry where did they commend them with they commended them to go out in the grace of god acts chapter 15 and verse 11 and it says this it says but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved the same manner as they. And so again, we're going to be saved by grace in 15, Acts 15 and verse 40. And it says, but Paul chose Silas and departing, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God once again in Acts chapter 18 and verse 27. And it says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he, he, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, 
And it says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And lastly, Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, it says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so when we look at all of this through the book of Acts, the reason why I wanted to look at these scriptures is because we see throughout the book of Acts that there was something that marked the community of believers, and it was grace. We're supposed to be a community of grace, meaning that everything that we have, everything that we do, and everything that we are able to accomplish is solely by the grace of God. In dealing with salvation, the theologians, there's something called the five solas, and one of them is sola gratia. It means solo grace. It means only grace. It means grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. And everything that we have is because of the grace of God. When we look at this scripture here in the book of John chapter 14, it says this. Look at verse, I mean, John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says this. Look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God comes in the, in, in the embodiment of grace in who? In his son Jesus. Jesus is that. And I'll say this, and you can, if, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. It is as we are understanding grace more clearly that we begin to live by grace more fully. Let me say that again. It is as we are understanding grace more clearly that we begin to live by grace more fully. And so let me give you my testimony just real quick and real short as far as grace goes. When I first became a Christian, I really understood the need for holiness in my life. I understood that God is a holy God and God says to be holy because he is holy. And so I strive and I would do everything I could to live righteous before God. And whenever I would sin before God, I'll never forget one, one time I fell and, and, I, and I confessed this sin before you. I mean, this is a long time ago, like 20 years ago. But about three months of me being a Christian, I fell from my perfection and before I got saved, I used to smoke a lot of marijuana, a lot, okay? And here's what happened when I became a, when I, when I became a Christian, right? When I became a Christian, I stopped doing that. Amen, glory to God, right? I realized that that wasn't of the Lord, right? I realized that that wasn't something that glorified God, and so I stopped doing that. And, and one day, I got weak in my flesh, and I ended up, you know, getting high again, and I, so I smoked marijuana again. And when I did that, I will never forget the level of conviction that I felt. I felt like I was going to hell immediately. Understand, I'm not joking either. I'm being dead serious. I mean, I felt like the person I was with, I'll tell you like this, the person I was with never wanted to hang out with me again when they were getting high because I was like, man, I feel so bad. And all I could do was talk about how sinful I was and ungodly I was and unholy. And so what would happen to me as, as a product of me understanding that God was holy, I used to, when I would sin, okay, because I want, I don't know about anybody else in here, but I, I, I've sensed God's presence in my life. Amen. And what happens is when you sin against God, I don't know about you, I, I can only talk about me, but when I sin against God, I feel the absence of his presence. Are you hearing me? I feel the absence. When we sing that song, your presence is heaven, I mean that. 
I don't just sing that because it's a good song and has good chords and has good vocals and all that. I sing that because I really mean that. Your presence is heaven to me. There's nothing like the presence of God. And so when you sin, and listen, if you don't feel something different when you sin, there's a problem. Are you hearing me? And so what would happen is I would wait until I felt God again to feel like I was okay with God. Are you hearing me? My point is this is that my relationship with God is not based on what I'm feeling. There is a reality. When I sin, I grieve the Holy Spirit. That means that I'm rejecting him. And there is a separation that takes place. Anybody will tell you, no matter what they believe in the Bible, when they read the scriptures and as far as salvation and all that kind of stuff, they will, believe, they, they will tell you this, that sin hinders relationship. Sin hinders relationship. And so what I was experiencing was the hindrance of my sin and my relationship with God. But then what would happen is I would wait until, I mean, I would fight, I would wrestle, I would pray, cry, repent, confess until I felt what? That presence of God again. And then when I felt his presence again, I was like, all right, I'm good with God. Can I ask you a question? When was I good with God? Let me tell you like this. I was good with God when Jesus died on that cross for me. Now, it doesn't mean, now, now understand, please hear me. It doesn't mean that my sins don't matter. The moment that I confess my sin, that right there, it, it, I didn't feel it right at that moment. I can promise you that. To this day, I don't necessarily feel it, but I know it. You see, I know that what Jesus did was sufficient. And so when I say that, it is as we more clearly understand grace that we begin to more fully live in his grace. What I mean by that is, is as we grow in the understanding of what God's grace really is, then we will really be able to grow in that and depend on that and be able to live a life that is fully and completely dependent upon his grace. How many of y'all want to live like that? So the first thing, repeat this after me, say, we must understand grace as given foundationally in order to build upon it practically. So we must understand grace as given foundationally in order to build upon it practically. And so the first thing we have to get when we talk about grace is that grace is given. Well, the title of my message is Grace is Granted and Grown In. Grace is granted and grown in. And so I'm going to go with the G-R-A-C-E for the next five messages. And so today we're going to deal with that G. Grace is granted and it's grown in. It is something that is given to us. It is something that God grants us. It's not something that we earn. And here's what I want you to see. So the Bible shows us that God shows God as being gracious from the Old Testament unto the New Testament. And so we have pictures of grace in the Old Testament as well as pictures of grace in this New Testament. And so in the book of Exodus, you can write this scripture down. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Moses is getting a revelation from God. And God begins to speak to Moses and tells him about himself. And what God reveals himself as, he says that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger. Amen. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful and he is forgiving. And so when you look at this, this, this revelation, we begin to understand some amazing things about God. It is not that he doesn't get angry, it is that he is slow to anger. 
He is abounding in his steadfast love towards us. And we will live our lives and we will dishonor and disrespect God. And guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't stop loving us. He doesn't stop reaching out toward us. You can be the most rebellious person on planet earth right now. You can hate God. You can want nothing to do with God. You can totally have turned your back on God. You can maybe be here only because someone dragged you here. And God's love doesn't stop toward you. You see, with us, you know, we're taught, you know, when someone rejects your love and someone hurts you and, so, you know, we're, 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 we're educated, right, that we separate, we draw ourselves away from them. God doesn't draw away from us. God doesn't draw. God continues to draw toward us. He continues to draw us toward himself. He also reveals, though, that he's not going to just leave sin undealt with in those same scriptures. He shows that he will judge all sin, giving us the first clear declaration or indication that grace does not ignore sin. Someone say amen to that. Grace is not some excuse for us to live how we want to live. Grace, see, when I said earlier that, you know, I felt this separation from God and that I would fight to get into God's presence, I don't mean to you that I don't do that any longer. Are you hearing me? I'm not telling you that I don't, I don't strive to be in his presence anymore. What I am telling you is that I don't fear, and I'm just saying this, I don't fear going to hell because I am not living a life of sin. Listen, if you are living a life of sin, if you are practicing sin, please hear this. What grace is saying to you is that you are going to be judged unless you repent of that sin. Grace is not saying, hey, go ahead and just sin all you want. I'm good with you. That's not what grace is saying. That is not what grace is communicating in any way, shape, or form. But grace shows us a magnitude of God's love that, you know, we, we, we don't really get it because we can't love the way that God loves. We can't show grace the way that God does. So even prior to the book of Exodus, what we find also is we see God operating in grace in the Garden of Eden. When you think about the Garden of Eden, as I was thinking about this, the first picture of grace in the Garden of Eden, the first picture that I see is when he creates Adam and Eve. You know what he does? He gives them everything. That's grace, isn't it? What did Adam do to deserve all that? Adam, Adam came into creation, and he, he already had a field. He already had a garden. There was already fruit. He was like, hey, you can eat of everything. You got everything that you need. I'm going to even give you a job. Amen. Glory to God. <laughs> Homeboy was hooked up from jump, right? And the next thing that God does is he provides him a woman. And that way they can do what? So they can come together. They can bear fruit. Amen. They could experience life together. They could enjoy each other. And so we see God's grace. They didn't do anything to deserve it. The next picture of God's grace that we see in the Garden of Eden is what? Is that the moment that Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, God did not destroy them. Because the moment that they sinned against God, God was well within his rights to just destroy them and say, okay, I'm going to start over. He could have done that. But he chose not to. As a matter of fact, he does two things that we see that are so gracious. The first one is we see in, in verse 15 in chapter 3 in the book of Genesis is that God does what? God makes the first declaration of what? Of the gospel. He communicates about this seed that is going to have enmity to this serpent. And he talks about uh, and he, he talks about the salvation that's going to take place. So the first thing is he gives them a promise of salvation. The second thing that we see in verse 21 is he does what? They sewed together fig leaves and they were trying to cover themselves. And God says, that's not a good enough covering for you. And so he does what? He clothes them in animal skins. 
We see three immediate pictures within the book of Genesis regarding the grace of God. And so God shows himself that he is a gracious God. Here's the thing, church. We have to realize that grace is given, not earned. It is given, not earned. Now, we're going to come back to the book of John in a moment, but I want you to turn to Genesis with me real quick because I want to show you a picture really quickly of, 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 of another person that I'm sure we all love. His name is Noah. Jo, jo, um, Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> now, I'm not going to fix all the mistakes in the movie Noah. I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to go that route. But here, here, here's, here, here's what I do want to fix for us. I want to fix in our mindset the thought process that Noah somehow earned God's favor. Because when we look at the scriptures, we have that mindset. We take people like Noah, like Job, and we look at them and we're like, hey, man, the Bible says they're blameless, says they're perfect, says all of these things about them. And then we think, oh, well, you know, that means that they earned God's favor somehow. That's not what the scripture says. Let's read from verse 1, and we're going to look at how wicked and how horrible this time is. It says this in chapter 6, verse 1, when you got to say so. It says, now it came to pass, and the reason why I'm, why I'm bringing this up is because this is really the first time that you see the word grace or favor spoken of in the Old Testament. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And look at verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And verse 8 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Does it say that Noah earned something? It goes through this whole picture of wickedness. And you don't hear anything about how good Noah is until like the next verse. And what it says is that he found favor or he found grace in the sight of the Lord. Now listen, I don't want to take away from anything because I believe what the scriptures. I mean, let's keep reading. It, it says... This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generation. Notice what it says, in his generation. It doesn't. Now, now let me ask you a question. Would it be hard to be perfect in that generation? I'm just saying, we didn't have the law yet. There wasn't, there wasn't the Torah written, and he was like perfect based upon Torah, right? It, that, that isn't the way that it was. Amen? I'm just saying, it was, it was, it was really, I think, kind of easy to be perfect in comparison. I'm just saying, he, he just went through this list of wickedness. Listen, angels were doing craziness. Are you hearing me? Fallen angels, not God's angels. Amen. Let's get it right. 
All right. And so what we have here is wickedness in the earth. And it says that Noah found, when I looked at that word found, because I really wanted it to say gain, so I'd be like, well, maybe my theology's wrong. It didn't say that. It's like he walked upon it. It's like he stumbled into it. It wasn't something that he earned for himself. And so Noah was a just man, meaning that what? That he lived the best way that he could. Now remember, a couple, of, a couple of verses earlier, it tells us that men begin to call on the name of the Lord. I believe it's in chapter 5. And so men started calling on God. There was some directive, and Noah was, you know, trying to see God, but he wasn't a perfect man. He didn't earn God's favor. God granted him or gave him favor. That's important for us to get. Because what happens to us is, again, we become moralist, meaning that we think that living moral lives make us right with God. What makes us right with God is what? It is the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us right with God. It is what Jesus did that makes us right with God. I do not earn my right standing with God. God earned my right standing with him. Because here's the thing, I may, and, I, and listen, I say may because I have yet to do it. I've been a Christian almost 20 years. Maybe one day I will live a perfect sinless day. Haven't done it yet, but I may do that one day. Can I tell you something? It's not going to continue the next day. And I'm going to just tell you my thought on that. This is my, I'm going to just give you my thought. My thought is the day that I think I lived a perfect day, I really didn't live a perfect day. There was some way in his, in his comparison to me and him that I was imperfect. Nonetheless, in my conscience, right? In my mind, I may live a day where I don't, you know, consciously sin against God. Therefore, what? I'm perfect all of a sudden? I have a better standing with God because I've reached a place? No, no, no. Hold on a second. My standing with God was already purchased by Jesus for me. This is what grace looks like. It is granted to me. God calls me righteous because he's righteous. He calls me holy because he is holy. That's what he does. This is what grace does for us. And so the New Testament, and I don't know about y'all. Let me ask you a question. A couple of, a couple of uh, months ago, we were in the book of Genesis. Y'all, I mean, the, in the book of Galatians. Y'all remember that? Went through this Galatians series, and we had, you know, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore. Y'all remember that scripture? Hope y'all are still meditating on it, right, so you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Anybody want to come quote it? I'm just kidding. But here's the thing. We have this. We, 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 we talked about grace in the, book of, in, in the book of Galatians, right? That's what that book was about, about our freedom in Christ and everything. And so let me ask you a question. One of the weeks in there, I don't remember which week it was, but I gave the definition of grace. Does anybody remember the definition? Good, then I need to give it now. Amen. That's why I asked the question, because if, if y'all remembered it, then I don't need to re-give it. See, so this shows y'all need to hear this message. Amen. Glory to God. Y'all don't even remember the definition of grace. I'm just joking. But here we go. The New Testament definition of grace is what? It is the word kadis. Say kadis. It is spelled C-H-A-R-I-S. This is a long definition. This is the reason why you don't remember this. But here's what I want you to get. First of all, the word kadis is used in the New Testament 156 times. So the word grace is a pretty big word, right? 156 times in the New Testament. 130 times it's actually translated grace. It's translated some other ways like goodwill, pleasure, and all that stuff. But the word God is, is the word for grace that we see, the grace of God. And what it means is this. It means grace. It means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech. It means goodwill, loving kindness, favor. Now here's the part that I want you to hear more than anything else. 
It is of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. That's a long definition. I don't expect you to get it all. I read it one more time, and if you want it, I'll send it to you. Amen? Here's what it says. Of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. It is the spiritual condition of one governed by the power of divine grace. Let me give you the shorter definitions. You can write these down. This is it. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That's the first part of the definition that you need to get. Grace is God's unmerited favor. In other words, grace is not something that we have merit of. It is something that we have no merit for. It is God's unmerited favor. The second part is this. It is the divine influence upon the heart displayed in the life. It is the divine influence upon the heart displayed in the life. Grace works from the inside out. God grants us grace. He gives us the grace to first and foremost. Here is what it is. He gives us the grace to turn to Jesus. Without God's grace, we don't turn to Jesus. Are you hearing me? You didn't turn to, hey, listen, some of you are thinking right now, nah, man, I turned to Jesus because I realized you had a problem. You want to know who, who pointed out you had a problem? Grace. Because you know how many people have the same problem you have and they never turn to Jesus? Or they haven't turned to him yet. I like to say it like that because you don't know, they may turn to him years later. I mean, my grandfather was 60 before he got saved. He had problems for 60 years and he didn't realize. I'm just saying. He didn't realize it. He didn't realize the issues that he was having. Really, he didn't realize the solution that was there. And so ultimately, what happens is, without grace, we don't turn to God. That's why he said there in the book of Acts that what? That those who had been saved by grace, right? He talks about them turning who had believed by grace. It is by grace that we're able to believe. And so here's the thing. The essential meaning of grace in the Bible refers to God's disposition to exercise goodwill toward his creatures. Let me say that again. The essential meaning of grace in the Bible refers to God's disposition to exercise goodwill toward his creatures. You can write these scriptures down. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. And the book of Acts chapter 16 and verse chapter 14 verse 16 through 17. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 and the book of Acts chapter 14 verses 16 through 17. Why are these scriptures important? Because these are examples of what is commonly called common grace. And so in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 what it talks about there is it talks about God pouring his rain on the just and the unjust. It talks about the sun on the, un, on the just and on the unjust. What does that have to do with anything that has to do with grace? Here's the thing. If you don't have rain and you don't have sun, guess what doesn't happen? Crops don't grow. And in those days, those were people who were agricultural people. Those were people who were farmers. And so they depended on the sun and they depended on the rain. And so really, you know who they were depending on? God Almighty. And what God shows is that he is the one. That's why you'll see some people, and that's why the book of Psalms tells you, don't fret when you see the wicked advancing. 
Don't, don't fret when you see them doing well. Don't fret when you see them. They're, they're only going to be here for a season. If they don't repent of sin, guess what? They experience judgment, sadly. We get overwhelmed because sometimes we see people who don't love Jesus doing better than us, and we're like, yo, man, I'm not going to serve Jesus. They're not. Wrong answer. The truth is that God demonstrates this common grace. And let me tell you something that's even more scary. Too many people look at God's common grace on their life as a measurement to their relationship with God. And what they think is, if everything is going well in my life, then I must be okay with God. If I'm okay, if everything is going okay in my life, then you know what? That means that I'm good with God. God loves me. I love God. And I'm a God-fearing man. You know how many people I hear say that stuff and it's disgusting to me? Listen, when you fear God, you don't live in sin. When you fear God, you don't live how you want to live. You can't walk around and say, oh, I'm a God-fearing man, but I live. No, 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 time out. See, a God-fearing man lives according to the scriptures. Not perfectly, but that is his aim. That is his goal. And so it becomes for us to consider this. God is benevolent. He is loving. He's kind. His disposition, meaning that God wants all of us to experience the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his mercy. And that's the reason why he comes in his son. You can turn back to the book of John and we'll start working through there. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And it says, it's, it's, it's where we started. And it talks about God coming in the form of man. And now, mind you, John, who is writing this, is John the apostle, John the disciple of Jesus, who had this intimate, close relationship with him. And he says in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so notice, he puts this emphasis. He starts in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he points out here in the first part of the chapter, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, who, is, who, 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 who Jesus is. He points that out. And then he says that the Word, who was God, becomes flesh. God comes down to this earth to become flesh for us because he wants to do what? He goes on to say this. He said, and we be Beheld they, the disciples, those people who lived during those days, beheld his glory and the glory of the only begotten of the Father who was full of what? Grace and truth. And so he comes as a manifestation of grace. Say the second thing with me. Say the person of grace must become our motivation for our growth in grace. The person of grace, who is Jesus, must become our motivation for our growth in grace. And I didn't say this earlier, but Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God that has been revealed throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And so what he is saying here, what John is communicating, now think about this, let's go back for a moment and put ourselves in the position of the original readers of this. What John is communicating is that what the Old Testament was talking about, what the Old Testament was speaking of, was speaking of this word becoming flesh and God coming to this earth. And so he is saying that the embodiment of grace is in Christ. The fulfillment of these scriptures is in who Jesus Christ is, and he comes with this grace and this truth. And so here it is. The greatest demonstration of grace is God coming in the flesh to do what? To save us. The greatest demonstration of grace. The greatest show of God's grace toward us is in Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Now he says this. He says, John bore witness of him. 
And when he speaks about John, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And so how is this possible? Just pause for a moment. Think about the logic behind what John the Baptist is saying. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So logically and physically... Who was first? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. And so when you look at it from that place, he wasn't talking about birth. He's talking about existence. He's saying Jesus was before me, before I was. And the reason why that's important is because John was this powerful preacher that was calling people to repentance. And, every, and many of the people thought that he was the Messiah. But John is like, I'm not the Messiah. He is the one that was before me. And he points to Jesus as being the Savior. And so understand this, when, we, when we're thinking about grace, because God wants us to grow in this grace, in verse 16, he says, and of his fullness, say, and of his fullness, we have all received. Now let's pause for a moment. For of his fullness, we have all received. And so now in this context, obviously, Jesus, I mean, John is writing to who? Say believers. He is writing to believers. And so when he says that we have all received, he is speaking in this context. He is speaking to us, to all of us that are, that are believers. We have received from where? From the fullness, from the overflow of who? Of who God is. We have all received. Everything that we have, we have received by what? By grace. Everything that we have, we have received through whom? Jesus. We have received because of what Jesus has given us. And so John points out to us that we have received this. And so through Jesus, we have access to experience the abundance of grace. And I like the next part of the verse. It says, and grace for grace, or grace upon grace, or grace against grace. I just want you to look at this for a moment because when you look at that grace upon grace, I studied this, this is probably the part of the scripture that I looked at the most in the entire study. But a grace upon grace, what does that mean? From of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace or grace for grace. The next verse, look at the next verse with me. It says, and it says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses. Did it say grace was given through Moses? Was it? Let me ask you this. Is there any grace in the law? Y'all should be shouting no if you were here for Galatians. There is no grace in law. Grace and law are two opposing things, right? One of them condemns us. The other one brings us forgiveness, right? What happens is the law leads us to who? It leads us to Jesus because it helps us to understand our imperfections and our desperate need for someone to save us because we can't save ourselves. Hello? And so it, it isn't that he's giving us a transplant of like there was Old Testament grace and this New Testament grace. That's not it. He's not talking about that in the sense that he's not talking about making a transfer for law. Remember, we see in the Old Testament, we see in Noah that he receives grace, right? There's grace that is experienced throughout the scriptures. And so there was this grace that was there even under the times of the law, not through the law, but during the times of the law, there were more people that should have died, more people should have been dead, more people 
should have been judged, but we see God's mercy and God's grace that is operating there. And when he comes and he communicates this, when he says that we receive this grace upon grace, he is saying that we receive this grace on top of grace, on top of grace, and the way that it's written is it is at a continual flow. And so I experience grace today, and I experience a greater grace tomorrow. As long as I am growing in this grace, right? This is what the scriptures communicate, I think it's in the book of Matthew, where he talks about he who has will be given more, but he who doesn't have, even what he, what he has will be taken from him. That's what the book of Matthew communicates. And when Jesus is talking about that, what he is saying is this. He is saying that the person who has truth, the truth of God in their hearts, the person who has the revelation of God and is growing in that, that's the person who has something. See, because I can say that I believe something. Remember what James says? James says, demons believe and tremble. Hello. That's what James says. And so I can sit here and I can say, oh, you know what? I believe the truth, but I'm not trembling. And, and listen, I'm not trembling. I'm not living according to the truth. I'm not living according to the word. Do I really have it? Hello? No, I don't have it. And so even he who, even he who doesn't have what he has it will be taken away. This is what the scripture teaches. But the one who has, the one who experiences the one who receives this grace, the one who receives this truth, he who has, more will be given to him. Grace upon grace. Upon grace. It's the abundance of grace that God wants us to live our lives in. See, if you can meditate on this scripture here, you can meditate and say, God, I want to receive continually from your fullness. I want to receive continually from the overflow of who you are. I want to receive continually from your grace, from your kindness, from your mercy. I want to live in that. I want to walk in that grace upon grace. That church is what I, what I desire for you. Amen. And listen, I don't just desire this for you because I'm so great. That's not true. I desire this because our Savior came here to give us this. Our Savior wants us to walk in grace upon grace. But here's the thing. He says that he comes what? With grace and, say and, yeah. truth. And so how do we grow in this grace? Because the Bible tells us in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of who Jesus is, of who Jesus Christ is. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. And so how is it that we're growing in grace? Well, we grow in grace through truth. We grow in grace through truth. And what, did you, what, 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 what is the, um, I think it's um, John chapter 8, like verse 32. It says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? And so how do we grow in the grace of God? Well, we grow in the grace of God through the experience, through the acceptance of, through the believing of the truth of the scriptures. And so what's the difference between the truth and the law? Well, here's the thing that I see. When I see that, when, when I look at truth and law together, what I realize is that the law says certain things. The truth is always applicable in all generations to everyone. And so let me give you an example. When Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, right, he says something like, you know, the Bible said, or you have heard that you should not commit adultery. Y'all remember that one, right? Right? And so what does he say? He says, you, you've heard that you shouldn't do that. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So you have the law, which is do not commit adultery. You have the truth, which is what? If you do it in your heart, you've already done it. 
And so it, what it does is it elevates this application. It shows us when, you know, another, another great example is when, when Jesus is talking about, you know, you've heard an eye for an eye and all of that stuff there. And he says, but you know what? But I'm telling you this. He says, you need to love your enemies. That's what he says. You've been told to love your neighbor, but I tell you to love your enemies. That's where, that, that's where, that's where um, Matthew chapter 5 comes into play because God is talking about what? He's talking about how, look, man, you can love those people that love you. He says, but you're not doing anything more than what? Than tax collectors. You're not doing any more than what a heathen is doing. He says, but you want to be like your heavenly father who does what? He pours his rain on the just and the unjust. He puts his son on the just and on the unjust. And so his enemies, he loves them. Amen. Those people that hate him, he loves them. Those people that, 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 that don't want anything to do with him, he still loves them. He still pours his rain. He still, pours, he, he still shines his sun upon their lives. And so here's the thing. We cannot, and I want you to get this, we cannot earn grace, but we can grow in it as we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is. Simultaneously, understand this please. As we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is, we come to know who we are not. Let me tell you how you know that you are really getting grace or that you are really growing in grace. It's by a life that is marked with humility. Are you hearing me? You want to know the, the, the telltale sign. You want to know if you are getting grace. Is your heart changing? Are you walking in humility before your God? Do you view other people differently. See, a humble heart views other people differently. A heart that is being changed by grace views other people differently. Oh, you're still going to get mad at folks. You're still going to want to lay holy hands on folks. Amen. All, all, all of that's going to remain true. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's going to still, you're, you're going to get frustrated with people. People are frustrating. I, I get that. But you see people differently. You see them differently. You don't see them the same way that you used to because you understand how grace operates in your life. Because you've experienced not just a concept, but a person. Jesus is that person that you experience. And you know what? When we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we have not arrived yet. Oh, we're growing. Amen. We should be growing. We should be becoming more knowledgeable of who he is. We should be experiencing more of his life change. But the, but, but the reality is we realize, man, the more that we start to understand grace, the more that we start to understand who God is, the more we start to look at the sacrifice of Jesus, the promises of Christ, the more that we start to see the gifts that God offers us, the more that we start to realize that it is by the spirit of grace that I am who I am, the more we start to get that, our hearts are change radically we start to see life in a different way humility you know what the bible says the bible says that god does what he gives grace to the humble he opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble he gives grace to the humble not people who act humble He gives grace to the humble, those who really recognize that they are nothing. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
What's the greatest truth that I try to drive home every week? It is the clear gospel picture that we are sinners separated from God because of our sin. See, some people hate to hear this. I hope you don't. I love to hear this. I love to say this. Amen? I love to remind myself all the time that I am a sinner by nature. Whether you believe this or not, you're a sinner by nature as well. I know you don't look like a sinner right now. You look cute, smell good, don't smell like a sinner, don't look like a sinner, but you're still a sinner. You're not going to act foolish, you know, and sinful up, up in here right now, right? Bishop, I'm holy. Right now you're holy at this moment. But by nature, you and I are sinners. That is the truth. We were born into sin because of Adam and Eve. And that's sin. But we weren't just born into sin. We willingly sin. Because it would be one thing to be able to say, oh, well, you know, I was born into sin, so I was just born that way. Yeah, but you know what? You make a decision to say yes to sin or no to sin. You make a decision, well, I'm going to live according to this sinful nature or not. The bottom line is all of us, redeemed or not, saved or not, after Christ or before Christ, it doesn't matter. We all decide for sin. Every one of us is a sinner. And so that's the first part of the truth. And that sin, here's the second part of the truth. This is the ugly part of the truth, is that our sin separates us from God. Our sin makes us God's enemies. That's, that's another part of the truth nobody wants to hear. But the reality is, my sin is what brought Jesus to this earth, that he had to die on the cross. And so I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from God. Everyone on the planet falls under that category. And here is the ugliest part of the truth, is that if I am a sinner who is separated from God and I die in my sin, I spend all of eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Those are the ugly truths that we have to grasp because if we don't grasp those truths, then we'll never grasp these truths. That God never intended for us to spend eternity in hell. Therefore, he comes in the form of a man full of grace and truth and he dies for every single one of our sins. He sheds holy blood for our sin. He dies in our place because we could never live holy enough lives to appease him or or please him, therefore he dies for us. And that way we can do what? We can choose to accept his sacrifice, accept his grace, and we can be experiencing the life-changing work that he accepts us as sons and daughters. See, the beauty of it is he doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our separation. He doesn't want to send us to hell, but he comes and dies in our place so that way we can what? So we can experience forgiveness, so we can experience freedom, so we can experience deliverance, so we can experience a new name, we can experience a new relationship. He wants us to experience all of that. And if we will accept his sacrifice, and the way that we do that is we trust him as being the only holy one, as being the fully and complete righteous one. We trust him as being able to save us. We recognize our sin. We turn from our sin and we turn to our Savior. We put our trust in him. That's what grace does. Grace allows us this amazing relationship to be with God. And then God wants us to experience grace upon grace. He wants us to go from experience common grace to experience elect grace. Amen? 
He wants us to go from experiencing the common grace that everyone has, the mercy that everyone sees, to us experiencing a personal divine grace. And he doesn't just want it to happen once. He wants it to happen continually. He wants us to continue to grow in the understanding of who he is. That is the beauty of our Savior. Here's the thing. I said this. The essential meaning of grace in the Bible refers to God's disposition to exercise goodwill towards his creature. Now hear this. This favorable disposition of God finds its supreme expression in Jesus Christ. By its very definition, this grace is rendered fully accessible to all humans. Say all humans. With no other precondition than a repentant desire to receive. Turn with me really quick to the book of Titus, chapter 2. This is my last scripture that I'm going to go to and we're going to wrap up right now. The book of Titus, chapter 2. The book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12. When you got it, say so. We'll actually read all the way down to verse 13. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Say all men. The grace of God. Listen to that scripture. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All men, everyone, listen, the grace of God has appeared. God has shown his grace and his mercy through what? Through the sacrifice of Jesus. It has appeared to all men. And he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that, we, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared to all men, church. The grace of God is accessible, accessible to everyone in here. And you are either A, a person who needs God's saving grace today. You don't know him and you need him today. And you know what? He offers you that grace freely, not because you're good but because he is. Or you are B, a person who needs God's grace as a child of God to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of who Jesus is. And so the question is this, have you received the grace of God first and foremost? And secondly, are you growing in that grace? Stand to your feet, please, and bow your heads. Gracious God, I come to you right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you, my God, for your word. I thank you for your 